Chapters 16 and 17 of A Short History of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. A Short History of the United States by Edward Channing. Chapter 16. Independence. 157. Fall of Charleston, 1780. It seemed quite certain that Clinton could not conquer the northern states with the forces given him. In the South, there were many loyalists. Resistance might not be so stiff there. At all events, Clinton decided to attempt the conquest of the South. Savannah was easily seized, 1778, and the French and Americans could not retake it, in 1779. In the spring of 1780, Clinton, with a large army, landed on the coast between Savannah and Charleston. He marched over to Charleston and besieged it from the land side. The Americans held out for a long time, but they were finally forced to surrender. Clinton then sailed back to New York and left Lord Cornwallis the further conquest of the Carolinas. 158. Gates Defeat at Camden, 1780. Cornwallis had little trouble in occupying the greater part of South Carolina. There was no one to oppose him, for the American army had been captured with Charleston. Another small army was got together in North Carolina, and the command given to Gates, the victor at Saratoga. One night, both Gates and Cornwallis set out to attack the other's camp. The two armies met at daybreak, the British having the best position. But this really made no difference, for Gates' Virginia militiamen ran away before the British came within fighting distance. The North Carolina militia followed the Virginians. Only the regulars from Maryland and Delaware were left. They fought on like heroes until their leader, General John DeKalb, fell with 17 wounds. Then the survivors surrendered. Gates himself had been carried far to the rear by the rush of the fleeing militia. 159. Kings Mountain, October 1780. Cornwallis now thought that resistance surely was at an end. He sent an expedition to the settlements on the lower slopes of the Allegheny Mountains to get recruits, for there were many loyalists in that region. Suddenly, from the mountains and from the settlements in Tennessee, rode a body of armed frontiersmen. They found the British soldiers encamped on the top of King's Mountain. In about an hour, they had killed or captured every British soldier. 160. The Calpins, 1781. General Greene was now sent to the south to take charge of the resistance to Cornwallis. A great soldier and a great organizer, Greene found that he needed all his abilities. His coming gave new spirit to the survivors of Gates' army. He gathered militia from all directions and marched toward Cornwallis. Dividing his army into two parts, he sent General Daniel Morgan to threaten Cornwallis from one direction, while he threatened him from another direction. Cornwallis at once became uneasy and sent Tarleton to drive Morgan away, but the hero of many hard-fought battles was not easily frightened. He drew up his little force so skillfully that in a very few minutes the British were nearly all killed or captured. 161. The Guilford Campaign, 1781. Cornwallis now made a desperate attempt to capture the Americans, but Green and Morgan joined forces and marched diagonally across North Carolina. Cornwallis followed so closely that frequently the two armies seemed to be one. When, however, the River Dan was reached, there was an end of marching, for Green had caused all the boats to be collected at one spot. 
His men crossed and kept the boats on their side of the river. Soon, Green found himself strong enough to cross the river again to North Carolina. He took up a very strong position near Guilford Courthouse. Cornwallis attacked. The Americans made a splendid defense before Green ordered a retreat, but, and the British won the Battle of Guilford. But their loss was so great that another victory of the same kind would have destroyed the British army. As it was, Green had dealt it such a blow that Cornwallis left his wounded at Guilford and set out as fast as he could for the seacoast. Green pursued him for some distance and then marched southward to Camden. 162. Green's Later Campaigns at Hopkirk's Hill, near Camden, the British soldiers who had been left behind by Cornwallis attacked Green, but he beat them off and began the siege of a fort on the frontier of South Carolina. The British then marched up from Charleston, and Green had to fall back. Then the British marched back to Charleston and abandoned the interior of South Carolina to the Americans. There was only one more battle in the South at Utah Springs. Green was defeated there, too but the British abandoned the rest of the Carolinas and Georgia, with the exception of Savannah and Charleston. In these wonderful campaigns, with a few good soldiers, Green had forced the British from the southern states. He had lost every battle. He had won every campaign. 163. Cornwallis in Virginia, 1781. There were already two small armies in Virginia, the British under Arnold, the Americans under Lafayette. Cornwallis now marched northward from Wilmington and added the troops in Virginia to his own force. Arnold he sent to New York. Cornwallis then set out to capture Lafayette and his men. Together they marched from Saltwater across Virginia to the mountains, and then they marched back to Saltwater again. Cornwallis had called Lafayette the boy and had declared that, quote, the boy should not escape him. Finally, Cornwallis fortified Yorktown, and Lafayette settled down at Williamsburg, and there they still were in September 1781. 164. Plans of the Allies In 1780, the French government had sent over a strong army under Rochambeau. It was landed at Newport. It remained there a year to protect the vessels in which it had come from France from a capture by a stronger British fleet that had once appeared off the mouth of the harbor. Another French fleet and another French army were in the West Indies. In the summer of 1781, it became possible to unite all these French forces and with the Americans to strike a crushing blow at the British. Just at this moment, Cornwallis shut himself up in Yorktown and was determined to besiege him there. 165. Yorktown, September to October, 1781. Rochambeau led his men to New York and joined the main American army. Washington now took command of the Allied forces. He pretended that he was about to attack New York and deceived Clinton so completely that Clinton ordered Cornwallis to send some of his soldiers to New York. But the Allies were marching southward through Philadelphia before Clinton realized what they were about. The French West India fleet, under de Grasse, reached one end of the Chesapeake Bay at the same time the Allies reached the other end. The British fleet attacked it and was beaten off. There was now no hope for Cornwallis. No help could reach him by sea. The soldiers of the Allies outnumbered him two to one. On October 17, 1781, four years to a day since the surrender of Burgoyne, a drummer boy appeared on the rampart of Yorktown and beat a parley. 
Two days later, the British soldiers marched out to the good old British tune of The World Turned Upside Down and laid down their arms. 166. The Treaty of Peace, 1783. This disaster put an end to British hopes of conquering America, but it was not until 1783 that Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay brought the negotiations for peace to an end. Great Britain acknowledged the independence of the United States. The territory of the United States was defined as extending from the Great Lakes to the 31st parallel of latitude and from the Atlantic to the Mississippi. Spain had joined the United States and France in the war. Spanish soldiers had conquered Florida, and Spain kept Florida at the peace. In this way, Spanish, Florida, and Louisiana surrounded the United States on the south and the west. British territory bounded the United States on the north and the northeast. End of chapter 15. Part 6. The Critical Period, 1783 to 1789. Chapter 17. The Confederation, 1783 to 1787. 167. Problems of Peace. The war was over, but the future of the American nation was still uncertain. Indeed, one can hardly say that there was an American nation in 1783. While the war lasted, a sense of danger bound together the people of the different states. But as soon as this peril ceased, their old jealousies and self-seekings came back. There was no national government to smooth over these differences and to compel the states to act justly towards one another. There was, indeed, the Congress of the Confederation, but it is absurd to speak of it as a national government. 168. The Articles of Confederation, 1781. The Continental Congress began drawing up the Articles of Confederation in June 1776, but there were long delays, and each month's delay made it more impossible to form a strong government. It fell out in this way that the Congress of the Confederation had no real power. It could not make a state or an individual pay money or do anything at all. In the course of a few years, Congress asked the states to give it over $6 million to pay the debts and expenses of the United States. It received about a million dollars and was fortunate to get that. 169. A Time of Distress It is not right to speak too harshly of the refusal of the state governments to give Congress the money it asked for, as the people of the states were in great distress and had no money to give. As soon as peace was declared, British merchants sent over great quantities of goods. People bought these goods, for everyone thought that good times were coming now that the war was over. But the British government did everything it could do to prevent the coming of good times. The prosperity of the northern states was largely based on profitable trade with the West Indies. The British government put an end to that trade. No gold and silver came to the United States from the West Indies, while gold and silver constantly went out of the country to pay debts due to British merchants. Soon gold and silver grew scarce, and those who had any promptly hid it. The real reason of all this trouble was the lack of a strong national government which could have compelled the British government to open its ports to American commerce. But the people only saw that money was scarce and called upon the state legislatures to give them paper money. 170. Paper Money Most of the state legislatures did what they were asked to do. They printed quantities of paper money. 
They paid the public expenses with it and sometimes lent it to individuals without much security for its repayment. Before long, this paper money began to grow less valuable. For instance, on a certain day, a man could buy a bag of flour for $5. In three months' time, a bag of flour might cost him $10. Soon it became difficult to buy flour for any number of paper dollars. 171. Tender Laws The people then clamored for tender laws. These were laws which would make it lawful for them to tender or offer paper money in exchange for flour or other things. In some cases, it was made lawful to tender paper money in payments of debts which had been made when gold and silver were still in use. The merchants now shut up their shops, and business was almost ceased. The lawyers only were busy, for those to whom the money was owed tried to get it paid before the paper money became utterly worthless. The courts were crowded, and the prisons were filled with poor debtors. 172. Stay Laws now the cry was for stay laws. These were laws to prevent those to whom money was due from enforcing their rights. These laws promptly put an end to whatever business was left. The only way that any business could be carried on was by barter. For example, a man who had a bushel of wheat that he did not want for his family would exchange it for three or four bushels of potatoes, or four or five days of labor. In some states, the legislators passed very severe laws to compel people to receive paper money. In one state, indeed, no one could vote who would not receive paper money. 173. Shays Rebellion, 1786-87. In Massachusetts, especially, the discontent was very great. The people were angry with the judges for sending men to prison who did not pay their debts. Crowds of armed men visited the judges and compelled them to close the courts. The leader in this movement was Daniel Shays. He even threatened to seize the United States arsenal at Springfield. By this time, Governor Bowdoin and General Lincoln had also gathered a small force of soldiers. In the midst of winter, through snowstorms and over terrible roads, Lincoln marched with his men. He drove Shays from place to place, captured his followers, and put down the rebellion. There were risings in other states, especially in North Carolina, but Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts was the most important of them all because it convinced the New Englanders that a stronger national government was necessary. 174. Claims to Western Lands The Confederation seemed to be falling to pieces. That it did not actually fall to pieces was largely due to the fact that all the states were interested in the settlement of the region northwest of the Ohio River. It will be well to stop a moment and see how this came about. Under their old charters, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Virginia, Carolina, and Georgia had claims to lands west of the Alleghenies. Between 1763 and 1776, the British government had paid slight heed to these claims. But Daniel Boone and other colonists had settled west of the mountains in what are now the states of Kentucky and Tennessee. When the revolution began, the states having claims to western lands at once put them forward, and New York also claimed a right to about one-half of the disputed territory. Naturally, the states that had no claims to these lands had quite different views. The Marylanders, for example, thought that the western lands should be regarded as national territory and used for the common benefit. Maryland refused to join the Confederation until New York had ceded her claims to the United States and Virginia had proposed a cession of the territory claimed by her.
175. The Land Sessions. In 1784, Virginia gave up her claims to the land northwest of the Ohio River, with the exception of certain large tracts which she reserved for her veteran soldiers. Massachusetts ceded her claims in 1785. The next year, 1786, Connecticut gave up her claims, but she reserved a large tract of land directly west of Pennsylvania. This was called the Connecticut Reserve, or more often, the Western Reserve. South Carolina and North Carolina ceded their lands in 1787 and 1790, and finally Georgia gave up her claims to western lands in 1802. 176. Passage of the Ordinance of 1787. What should be done with the lands which, in this way, had come into the possession of the people of all the states? It was quite impossible to divide these lands among the people of the 13 states. They never could have agreed as to the amount due to each state. In 1785, Congress took the first step. It passed a law or an ordinance for the government of the territory northwest of the Ohio River. This ordinance was imperfect, and few persons immigrated to the west. There were many persons who wished to immigrate from the old states to the new region, but they were unwilling to go unless they felt sure they would not be treated by Congress as the British government had treated the people of the original states. Dr. Cutler of Massachusetts laid these matters before Congress and did his work so well that Congress passed a new ordinance. This was in 1787. The ordinance is therefore called the Ordinance of 1787. It was so well suited to its purpose that nearly all the territories of the United States have been settled and governed under its provisions. It will be well to study this great document at more length. 177. The Ordinance of 1787. In the first place, the ordinance provided for the formation of one territory to be called the Territory Northwest of the Ohio, but it is more often called the Northwest Territory, or simply the Old Northwest. At first, it was to be governed by the persons appointed by Congress, but it was further provided that when settlers should arrive in sufficient numbers, they should enjoy self-government. When fully settled, the territory should be divided into five states. These should be admitted to the Confederation on a footing of equality with the original states. The settlers in the territory should enjoy full rights of citizenship. Education should be encouraged. Slavery should never be permitted. This last provision is especially important as it saved the Northwest to freedom. In this way, a new political organization was invented. It was called a territory. It was really a colony, but it differed from all other colonies because in time it would become a state on a footing of entire equality with the parent states. End of chapter 17